Welcome to the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education Podcast. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, Board Certified Specialist in Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia and U.S. Director of Technical Services at Jurox Animal Health Incorporated. The content of this podcast represents the best in evidence-based and peer-reviewed medicine. Some content may be the opinion of Jurox Incorporated, a subsidiary of Jurox Proprietary Limited, and its technical services department. As a matter of full disclosure, I need to tell you that I am an employee of Jurox Incorporated, Jurox Markets Outfaxin Multidose. This podcast contains promotional subject matter on Outfaxin. Full prescribing information can be found at www.jurox.com US or by reviewing the Freedom of Information Summaries online by searching NADA 141-342 for Outfaxin Multidose. In this episode, we will discuss the peri-anesthetic fluid management of Raisin. Raisin is a 16-year-old female spayed Siamese cat previously diagnosed with stage 3 chronic kidney disease. Raisin requires general anesthesia for a dental scaling due to dental disease. We will follow Raisin from pre-anesthetic examination assessment through anesthesia recovery with a focus on anesthetic concerns and fluid therapy goals for a renal patient. Before focusing on our patient, let's start with a brief overview of renal physiology. The kidney's primary responsibility is maintaining homeostasis through fluid, electrolyte, and acid-base balance. 60 to 70% of body weight is water. The kidney maintains fluid balance via reabsorption or excretion of water and metabolic waste from the body. Lesser recognized responsibilities include control of vascular tone through feedback mechanisms and regulation of hematopoiesis and bone metabolism. The kidneys receive approximately 20 to 25% of cardiac output and requires twice the amount of oxygen compared to the brain. This is an important consideration because drastic swings in arterial blood pressure affect renal blood flow and renal perfusion. Hypotension and hypovolemia can result in renal ischemia, which can lead to acute kidney energy injury and excessively high arterial blood pressure can damage the glomerular, vascular, and related structures, which contributes to renal insufficiency and disruption in renal autoregulation. Thus, routine arterial blood pressure monitoring in conscious as well as anesthetized patients is of utmost importance. There are three key factors to understand when performing anesthesia on patients with renal disease or those that could be prone to acute kidney injury. Renal blood flow, glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, and urine output. The healthy kidney can auto-regulate glomerular filtration by a complex feedback system that influences renal blood flow when mean arterial blood pressure is between 80 to 180 millimeters of mercury. Now you might find some references where the high end of this range is around 150 millimeters of mercury, but regardless, this is a wide range in a healthy kidney. These renal autoregulatory mechanisms make renal blood flow directly related to glomerular filtration rate. The normal autoregulation set points can be altered in disease states like those with chronic hypertension or acute renal failure. This may require a higher mean arterial blood pressure range for optimal autoregulation of renal blood flow and GFR. Additionally, there are outside influences that can negatively impact these feedback mechanisms, causing a further alteration of GFR. A primary example is catecholamine release associated with sympathetic stimulation, which occurs in response to pain. 
So ultimately, the anesthetist needs to identify individuals with disease states that can alter renal autoregulation and establish a starting resting value for that individual's arterial blood pressure. We also need to recognize that while we use arterial blood pressure to ensure adequate perfusion pressure, mean arterial pressure does not always linearly relate to renal blood flow in GFR. Mean arterial blood pressure does, however, have a direct impact on urine output. Within an optimal range of mean arterial blood pressure, urine is produced and increases as mean arterial blood pressure increases. In the clinic setting, the only factors we can reasonably clinically assess in our small animal patients is mean arterial blood pressure and urine output. Now, Raisin has been previously diagnosed with chronic kidney disease. Chronic kidney disease is diagnosed based on evaluation of all available clinical and diagnostic information in a patient. Triggering variables for suspicion or confirmation include increased serum creatinine, increased SBMA, abnormal kidney images on radiographs or ultrasound, persistent renal proteinuria, and in more advanced cases, urine-specific gravity less than 1030 in dogs and 1035 in cats, as well as increased systolic arterial blood pressure. Other abnormalities that may be present include electrolyte and hemodynamic disturbances. A common electrolyte abnormality is hypokalemia. The International Renal Interest Society has a nice downloadable PDF to help identify, stage, and treat chronic kidney disease. For Raisin, based on the physical exam and diagnostic testing, she has been identified with stage 3 chronic kidney disease due to moderate renal azotemia. Raisin's clinical signs are considered mild and consistent with early stage 3 chronic kidney disease. Systolic arterial blood pressure has been in the 145 to 155 millimeter mercury range, body weight has been stable, and she has been eating and drinking normally. Now, Raisin is being fed a renal diet to slow the progression of her chronic kidney disease. A CBC serum chemistry panel performed the day before anesthesia shows electrolyte levels within normal ranges and that anemia is not present. Raisin's heart lungs escalt normally. Developing an anesthetic plan for Raisin is now the next step. It is best practice to develop a plan that addresses Raisin's sedation and analgesia needs, preferably using a multimodal approach. There is no single recommended anesthetic protocol for patients with chronic kidney disease. Each patient will require an individualized approach. Goals of anesthetic management include maintaining normal tension, eubulimia, and good cardiac output to maintain perfusion of vital organs. For specific anesthetic drug recommendations for patients with renal disease, it is important to realize that many drugs rely on some degree of renal excretion, which can vary between species. Most notably, ketamine primarily relies on renal excretion in cats, so it's advised to use large doses of ketamine in cats with significant renal disease. It is also advisable to avoid certain drugs or doses of drugs that cause excessive vasodilation and hypotension. These include high doses of acepromazine and mask or chamber induction with inhalants. Now, inhalant max sparing techniques such as local blocks and or CRIs are highly encouraged. Although a definitive link between patient mortality and the use of perioperative NSAIDs in patients with pre-existing renal disease has not been established, it is recommended to either administer them judiciously or avoid them altogether. It is up to the attending veterinarian to weigh the risks and benefits of their use. For Raisin, who thankfully isn't anxious or stressed in the clinic, pre-medication will be with methadone, induction with intravenous alfaxalone, and maintenance with isoflurane and oxygen. Now, some of you may be asking, why not include a sedative? Certainly, you could include a sedative, such as midazolam, 
However, an older and calm cat, I don't find it necessary. Methadone will have a calming effect. And remember, midazolam can cause paradoxical excitation in some patients. If tooth extractions are needed to lower the isoforine concentration requirement, local blocks will be performed. Other methods to lower isoforine uh, requirements are to administer an additional dose of an opioid or to use a partial intravenous anesthetic technique, PIVA, with an infusion of an injectable anesthetic, such as alfaxalone. For our planning of Raisin's peri-anesthetic fluid therapy for the dental procedure, we will perform a thorough physical examination, including assessment of her hydration status. We are looking for one of three states, dehydration, overhydration, or normal hydration. Mucous membranes and skin trigger examination are two popular assessments of hydration status in patients. Dehydration is typically detectable between 5% and 15% body weight. Mild dehydration is classified as 6-7% body weight and results in loss of skin pliability and tackiness of the mucous membranes. Moderate dehydration, classified as 8-10% loss in body weight, represents presents the, in the patient as sticky mucous membranes, loss of skin turgor, depression, and mental dullness. Severe hydration, 10 to 12%, will consist of altermentation, possible loss of consciousness, shock, and dry mucous membranes. We will use this information to help us determine appropriate fluid rates prior to and during general anesthesia for raisin. When dehydration is identified, it is important to then determine the percent dehydration or fluid deficit. We will do this by multiplying body weight in kilograms by the percent dehydration as a decimal times 1,000 to convert to milliliters. Based on the chronicity of the dehydration, we need to determine how quickly we can restore this patient to a euvolemic status, ideally before the induction of anesthesia. In acute dehydration, it's important to determine if there are comorbidities, including diastolic cardiac dysfunction, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and pericardial diseases, where there is limited filling of the ventricle due to small chamber size. If present, the fluid deficit should be corrected more slowly. And then finally, in patients that are hypovolemic from a chronic state of dehydration, correction is recommended even more slowly, potentially over 24 to 48 hours when time allows. And once fluid deficit has been corrected, anesthetic induction can proceed. The current American Animal Hospital Association anesthesia and monitoring guidelines for dogs and cats include anesthetic fluid recommendations for healthy, euvolemic patients. These guidelines account for daily maintenance fluid requirements plus anticipated anesthetic losses, which include respiratory, evaporative, and surgical or blood losses. The guidelines recommend a starting fluid rate of 5 mL per kilogram per hour for dogs and 3 mL per kilogram per hour for cats of a crystalloid solution. In healthy euvolemic patients after one hour, if is anesthetic losses are minimal, the rate can be reduced by 25% over subsequent procedural hours until a daily maintenance rate is achieved. For patients with identified renal insufficiency, we may need to increase the anesthetic fluid rate if normal hydration status wasn't achieved prior to induction of anesthesia. Dehydration below 5% is clinically difficult to assess. For patients with evidence of renal insufficiency are often slightly dehydrated and assuming a 5% deficit is common practice. But it's important to remember that the clinical decision for fluid rates should be based on continual monitoring and reassessment of the patient. Raisin will be admitted to the clinic and maintained on intravenous fluids for up to 24 hours prior to her dental procedure. 
She will be administered a maintenance fluid rate of 40 to 60 mLs per kilogram per day and replacement or fluid deficit, estimated at 5% dehydration over the first four to six hours. Now, Raisin is a petite four kilograms, so her fluid deficit is calculated at 200 mLs, which is four times 0.05 times 1,000. The decision of which fluid type is selected is based on the patient's electrolyte status. Typically, a balanced polyionic crystalloid fluid, such as lactate arena solution, is selected. If hyperkalemia was present, physiologic saline could be selected, but be mindful that this choice could worsen a pre-existing metabolic acidosis. The effect of fluid administration should be closely monitored. For raisins, this can be accomplished non-invasively with careful physical examination and thoracic auscultation. An emerging non-invasive point-of-care technology to monitor fluid responsiveness when managing hypotension is at the Plasmographic Variability Index, or PBI. The basic principle of PBI monitoring is that during the respiratory cycle mechanical ventilation in the anesthetized patient, fluctuations in the waveform you see on the pulse oximeter are detectable. Inspiration during positive pressure ventilation produces increased thoracic pressure, which not only inflates the lungs, but also places positive pressure on the great vessels that reside in the chest, including the vena cava, aorta, and the heart itself. The greater the PBI, the greater likelihood that the patient will respond favorably to fluid resuscitation. Low PBI, therefore, would suggest that fluids may do more harm than good, and consideration for other means of optimizing perfusion should be pursued, such as the administration of inotropic or pressor drugs. The clear benefit is the ability, non-invasively, to predict volume responsiveness in anesthetized patients. One significant disadvantage is that the patient must be mechanically ventilated, not spontaneously breathing. Research and validation of veterinary species to assess the use of PBI for responsiveness of fluid administration in management of hypotension has not yet been established. More invasive techniques include measuring urine output or monitoring central venous pressure, which may not be practical in this patient. Now, during anesthesia, we will monitor arterial blood pressure to estimate tissue perfusion. If hypotension occurs, there are several steps we can take to increase blood pressure. The first step is to decrease anesthetic depth by decreasing the isoflurane concentration. If blood pressure does not improve, then a fluid bolus of three to 10 mLs per kilogram can be administered. If Raisin does not respond to these interventions and she is not considered hypovolemic, then we can consider the use of an isotropic or pressure drugs and changing to a partial or total intravenous anesthetic regimen. Now remember that just because you turn the vaporizer off, your job isn't over yet. A 2008 study by Broadbelt found that 61% of perioperative fatalities in cats occurred within the first 48 hours after anesthesia and surgery. We strive to provide a continuum of care that extends through the recovery and discharge home. Raisins should be vigilantly monitored until extubated, fully recovered, and able to ambulate normally. Post-anesthetic fluid administration may be beneficial in patients with renal disease. The rate and duration will depend on how well Raisin did during anesthesia. While in the hospital and receiving intravenous fluids, raisins should be monitored for volume overload by paying attention to respiratory rate and effort. Pain status should be regularly assessed for any patient undergoing a painful procedure. Raisin will be recovering from a dental procedure that may have included extractions. She received analgesic drugs as pre-medication and likely during the procedure as well. And as you recall, local anesthetic blocks were also included in the anesthetic plan. But if we suspect that raisin is painful, it is better to administer an analgesic drug, such as a full mu agonist opioid, 
than to risk leaving her paint untreated. We can wait a few minutes to see if she settles down. If she is still agitated or vocalizing, we can administer a low dose of a sedative, such as dexamethasone or acepromazine. I hope that you've recognized that an individualized antiseptic plan that includes appropriate fluid therapy for raisin is important for optimal patient outcomes. Raisin will be ready to go home with her owner when she is awake, alert, and pain-free and has a normal volume status. We achieve these outcomes by selecting appropriate fluid type and rate, appropriate analgesic and anesthetic drugs, vigilant peri-anesthetic monitoring, and assessing patient response to therapy and interventions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education podcast series brought to you by Jurox Animal Health. Jurox is committed to improving the quality of anesthesia globally. As a part of this commitment, we have produced a series of continuing education content. Be sure to visit thinkanesthesia.education for a listing of CE material, including podcasts. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, and remember,